journey? That was a little bit better than the A3. A3, I think, was still hung over on some turkey, all right? So you guys need to be a little bit better because they were like, usually they're a little bit more ambunctious, and they were kind of like, and I was like, I can't deal with this right now. So thank you for being present with me. Um, I want you guys to know our senior pastor here today. We love him. Give it up for our senior pastor, Pastor Chris, right here. Yeah. I get to preach in front of him, so that's a blessing for me. But um, I want you to know we have a theological agreement on the season we're in right now of the year that is a defined time of the year from Thanksgiving to Christmas that is the best time of the year. And we want you to know if you have any disagreements with that, you're wrong. Okay, this is the best time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the feel, the vibe, the sports, got the World Cup happening, which was news to me. Um, but hey, go us, right? Um, I'm excited about that. So it's been a fun, fun time, but uh, really excited. Congratulations, you made it this far uh, after Christmas. Christmas morning's fun. Christmas afternoon, a little sad, right? I mean, New Year's coming, no one wants that, but it's okay. We just have another year to go. We'll be back here together. It'll be good, okay? So, hey, if you have not a chance to meet me, my name is Christian Grassi. I'm on staff here at Journey. I'm the church planning resident here, um, meaning that I have the opportunity of learning from Journey how uh, to plan a church, how to run a church. What does it look like? What does it take like? And a part of that is having opportunities every now and then to preach God's word, which I'm very thankful for and excited about today. But before we jump in, I want to put a picture on the screen of a small child, not just any child. You may re recognize this child. If you don't, this is me. This is me as a young lad, about three years old. Um, and I'm assuming the thing that sticks out to you is probably not my well-combed hair or those, you know, full eyebrows or the fact that I have a little bit of a smirk, but probably the giant satellites on the side of my head <laughs> that you're like, whoa, <laughs> that thing's going to catch some air. This guy's going to fly away, right? What you're beholding with your eyes is what we like to call my family the gracia ears. My dad's here with us as well. If you ever get a gander of him this morning, go ahead, look at him. Don't have to say a word. Just like, check him out. You'll be like, my goodness. You know, you'll, you'll actually think I got off easy with him, all right? So we, we just have this in our family. It's just kind of a part of who we are. And unfortunately, he's apologized to me my whole life for giving me these ears. I've embraced them. My identity's not in my ears. You know, it's in Christ. But now my kids have my ears, right? My daughter does. Luckily, she has hair that kind of covers them. My son, though, no escape. They're just out there. They're, they're ready to rock and roll. Looks like our four-month-old has them too. But that's just us. That's what marks our family. A little bit of a physical trait is that we have abnormally large ears, all right? And we rock it. And you see that with people. Some family, someone texted me actually in between services and said, I have the same thing in my family we talk about all the time. Look. And, there's, and they were some big ears. I was like, dang, I didn't put that picture up there. And you might have that in your family. Or maybe there's a trait that's been, tra that, that's been handed down through your family uh, that is very evident. For instance, we have a five-year-old little girl named Karis, right? And she seems to take after her mother in some ways. My wife is awesome, but she's a self-proclaimed foodie, meaning this, my girl lives to eat. I eat to live. There's a difference there, right? I'll skip meals. I'll kind of get through my day. She plans her days and her life around the meals that she's going to eat. When she's having one meal, she's thinking about what's next, all right? That's how she lives her life. I'm assuming there's a few of you in this room. I know there's foodies all over the place. God bless you. I'm just not that. But she is. What we have come to find is that that little trait got handed down to Karis because that girl non Stop. Non-stop talks about eating. I mean, 
constantly. We're eating meals. And between meals, she wants a snack. She's always hungry. You would think we don't feed our children. We feed our children. Don't listen to her, okay? She asks you for a snack. It's just because she loves food. And she got it from her mother, right? And here's the point. We can oftentimes tell where people come from based off of things that they do or some of the ways that they look. There's some traits that every family has that's handed down to them. And that's true about our physical families. It's also very true about the family of God. There's certain things that the people of God do and look like that give away that they belong to him. And we've been in a series going through the book of 1 John, trying to figure out, are we in the family of God? Are we saved? How do we know that? And luckily, God's given us a book, 1 John, to answer that very question. There's a verse that's kind of the theme verse of our series that we've been reading every week, 1 John 5.13. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote the book, 1 John, so that you and me could have assurance of being saved. And in this book, it's chock full of ways to find out and figure out what is necessary, what does it mean to be a Christian, how do we know? And so we've been in this series for, I think this is the sixth week, and we're going to wrap up the series. But let me give you a quick review of where we've been, okay? So I'm going to do my best, kind of like if you watch football on Sundays, Boomers, Fastest Three Minutes Alive, it gives the highlights of all the scores. Not going to be that exciting, but kind of along the same lines, okay? We're going to review it and talk about it. Week one, we talked about the true nature of salvation. We learned this lesson that salvation is not just a prayer. We don't just pray and then we're saved and wait for heaven. We pray, receive Jesus, and then it's a posture of life. It's a way that we live is what it means to be saved. Week two, we introduced the first assurance that we have, the testimony of authentic faith. We learned about Jesus and how he's the son of God, how he came and died for us, showing us that we had a need for a savior because only he and he alone could pay for sin and thank God that he did. Week three, we talked about assurance number two, the grace of obedience. Jimmy Dodd came and he had a great sermon talking about how a Christian begins to learn to love, to want to obey and follow God. Not because it earns salvation, but because it's an evidence of salvation, a very important distinction that we need to understand. And then week four, we learned about the assurance number three, the assurance of endurance. Love this line. A lot of people like to say, once saved, always saved. Though theologically true, we would agree with that statement. We don't like how it sounds practically. So instead, we've adopted a line, once saved, always following. A follower of Jesus is constantly, from the beginning, they, they start following him, they continue that through life. And when they do that, they feel close to Jesus. When they feel close to Jesus, they feel safe to Jesus. And then a couple weeks ago, Pastor Christian knocked out two assurances in one week. The first one was kind of on the changing and sinful and spiritual desires that as we become more like Jesus, things of the world, sin change. We no longer want them like we used to. We want things that God wants. Our heart is changed. It's not that we're sinless, but we do sin less. And then he taught on the assurance number five, love for God's people and mission. We are marked by love. That's what the people of God are. And it's through that love that we love people and serve them that the world actually sees who God is. And now we get to close the series today with assurance number six, the power to overcome. We're going to be talking today about what it looks like to overcome spiritually. So if you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and flip open to 1 John 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Everything I read will be on the screen behind me. So if you have a Bible, don't worry. If you have the JCI app, you want to follow along in your notes there, you can. If you have your bulletin, there should be notes in, inside that you can follow along and kind of take notes with me and just keep track. But if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Everything we say and read, the blanks will be on the screen behind me. 1 John 5, 1 through 12. Before we read, as we always do here, would you bow your heads with me and pray that we ask God to prepare us to read his word 
Just in your seat there, take a moment, take a deep breath. Just settle into this moment. Lots of stuff going on. Things that we could be doing and thinking about. Just ask God to help focus your mind on this moment. Ask him to speak to you directly today. That it would be clear that you would hear from him through his word. Father, we need that today. Lord, no matter how much scripture we read, if your spirit doesn't help us understand it, it will be worthless, God. We pray right now that you would speak to each and every one of us. Help me to teach clearly, and God, I pray your word would take root in our heart and bear fruit in our lives. We love you. We need you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, 1 John 1 through 12, chapter 5. Let's read it. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who it is that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We'll be spending most of our time unpacking these verses, reading them kind of over and over again, but highlighting different parts. So just prepare for that. You're going to hear these verses a lot. What's going to follow, 6 through 12, is really supporting this idea in verse 5 of Jesus being the Son of God. So listen to what it says. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit... It is because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. That's essentially saying this, from the point of Jesus' entire ministry that we can read of in the gospels, what John witnessed with his own eyes, from the beginning of his ministry with the, the water, his baptism, to the end, his death, the blood, we can point to that and we can see, sustained by the spirit all throughout, that he is who he said he was. And that's what he's pointing to, saying, we know this guy is really the son of God. Verse 9. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Lot there. I'm going to do my best to unpack that in the time given, okay? So when I like to read scripture, when I like to teach, a lot of times I ask questions. It's kind of how my brain works. I look at a passage and I just start asking questions about the passage to find answers to understand it. And so today we're going to be asking two questions so we can understand what John is talking about here. You heard him say earlier that we overcome the world. So this is about being overcomers, right? That's what his topic is. That's what he's aiming at. So the first question for me is what is the world? What is the world? If that's something that we're going to overcome, if that's what the enemy is, if that's what we need to know that we are going to have victory over, then my mind says, well, what is that? Is that the earth we live in? Is that the world that we're in? How do we understand that spiritually? And John actually gave us the answer earlier in the book in chapter 2. Look what he says here in verses 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So John goes ahead 
And he describes the world with these kind of three contents, lust of the flesh. So yeah, that's the idea of these God-given desires that I'd say we've been given to have food, provision, security, affections, all those things that's been twisted and broken by sin. And now we have these temptations that flow out of us that make us want to do things we know we shouldn't do. And we wrestle with those for the rest of our lives. Lust of the eyes, the idea of us seeing things and having a covetous heart over them, wanting them, desiring them. I thought of Eve when she's in the garden and she sees the fruit and it's, she desires to take it even though she knows she shouldn't. The pride of life is that idea of us having really our identity in our possessions, in our circumstances. It's puffing ourselves up, comparing ourselves to other people, feeling like we're more insignificant than we need to be. I say this, that all three of these categories, you could probably fit any kind of sin under the sun in. All three, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. One of the things that we struggle with, what are we battling, probably falls in one of these three categories, maybe all of them. So here's how I define the world. The world represents the spiritually broken way of life that is opposed to God and his people. The world represents the spiritually broken way of life that is opposed to God and his people. It's important to understand the idea of way of life. Scripture talks about this idea of the patterns of the world, kind of what it does and how it leads its people. It's a system of spiritual belief that is not for our good, but make us think that, professes it's good, professes it's how to live life, but really it's broken. And it's opposed to everything that God stands for. And we know from earlier in the series that those who are of God will be hated because they are of God, right? We're not of the world, we're of him, and therefore the world hates us because we say something different than everything, everyone else. And we know the world is not for us because it says in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we know the agenda here is not for us to be better Christians in the world. If the world had it our way, it would have us run from God, not love him, disobey, go into sin, go into brokenness. And that is what we face every single day of every, every moment, every single day. We're facing something along the lines of what the world's trying to get us to do, trying to attack us, trying to tear us down. That's what we're trying to overcome. That's the definition. That's going to be what we're going to work with today of understanding what the world is. And here's the second question. We're going to spend most of our time. If that's what the world is, then how do we overcome it? How do we overcome it? This world, this system of belief, how are we the ones that are going to have victory over it? And John tells us pretty clearly, he says it's going to be our faith. Look at the first few verses of, of 1 John 5, 1 through 5. It says, everyone who believes faith that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes. What I want you to see in this passage, verses 1 and 4 and 5, it's like this little chunk of scripture really is like a faith sandwich, okay? I want you to think of sandwiches this morning with me as we think of faith, because that's how John has written this. But there's unique differences in verse 1 and verse 5 that I want you to take note of. The first verse is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. If you don't know this, if you don't go to church often, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Shocker. I know, right? Merry Christmas. Jesus Christ is actually a title. Christ means Messiah. It speaks to the fact that Jesus was the one promised years ago by God who was going to come and save his people from sin and then lead them into eternity. That's kind of the mantle that he wears. That's what it means for him to be the Christ, the Messiah. And John says, believing in that is how we overcome. For us today, it's believing in the gospel. It's us looking backwards at the cross that we get power to overcome. Look how Paul puts it in Colossians 2. He wrote a letter to a church in Colossae 2,000 years ago dictating this very thing. Look what he says. When you were dead in your sins, hopeless, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Pause. So if you go back to week two, we talked about a little bit, a word that we like to reference to Jesus, we see in scripture is something called propitiation. It's the idea of Jesus being the thing that removed the wrath of God from being over us and onto him. That's how we now have grace because of what Jesus did. That's what this is referring to, this indebtedness. What, what is standing against us in sin, Jesus has taken away. That's what the gospel means. That we had no shot, no chance to pay the wages of sin. But Jesus stepped in and said, I'll take care of it because only I can. And he did. Verse 15, look what this means for us. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the gospel gives us power to win. Without that, we would have no shot. There was no chance for us to push back on the world without Jesus. But because of Jesus, we now can say, along with 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us victory through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. We can have spiritual victory over the world because Jesus has already won. It's already won. It's not a question. It's not an argument. Jesus already won. In the Old Testament, God would tell his people often, go take the land, I've given it to you. That means they're going to go and fight some people, but they for sure had the victory. Not a question. For us today, spiritually, God's saying the same thing to us. You've got the victory. It's yours. Go take it. I took care of that back in the past on the cross. Now you have the power to overcome through me. And I just have a burden. I feel like a lot of people today, a lot of Christians who are in a mode of struggle, a season of struggling right now against the world, against the flesh, against sin, are living in a place of defeat. And I just happen to think that it's probably because we're quenching the spirit with our doubt and unbelief that he really could help us overcome. We're too weak. We're not able. And guess what? You're right. You are weak. You are unable. But you also have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. And he's the one that gives you the power over the world. That's why John says in 1 John 4, I should put this in my sermon, I didn't, I apologize. But he says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He overthrew him. So we have victory because of that. Do you believe that today? Or have you been, maybe like me sometimes, living in spiritual defeat? Licking your wounds, thinking there's no chance I can do this. I can't overcome this. I can't beat this addiction or whatever struggle I have. I want you to know someday, through Jesus, through Jesus alone, you have victory. So that's kind of the basic thing we see. That first faith sandwich, the first top part, we're looking back at the cross. And we're saying, okay, that's how we overcome. I understand that. But then there's more. What we're going to see now as we unpack these next few verses is really two marks of an overcomer that John is talking about. And the first mark is this. An overcomer loves through obedience. An overcomer loves through obedience. These marks are going to tell us what we should look like, but also how we overcome. So love and obedience are popular themes in the book of 1 John. Outside of the first chapter, they show up in every single chapter in the book. Arguably, you could say obedience is actually present in chapter 1 with walking in light. But regardless, it's everywhere. It's a big deal to John that we understand this whole concept of love and obedience. I'd say it this way. It's the gross hit ears of our faith. Dead giveaway. The way you know someone's a Christian, not by their ears, but by their love and their obedience. That's what John's trying to get us at, is a Christian obeys and loves God. He's not repeating himself because he thinks we're dumb. He's trying to get the point across, this is a big deal. You can't miss this. Look at the first few verses, and again, 1 John 1 through 3. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. And get this, everyone who loves the Father 
loves the child as well. I talked about that a couple weeks ago with assurance number four or five. Verse two, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And then John almost repeats himself as if he forgot he just said that. He says, in fact, this is love for God. Keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. We've talked a lot about this in the series. Jimmy Dodd had a great message on this very thing. But I just, as I studied the scripture, I was like, man, John does not want us to miss this of how important love and obedience is. So I got a couple points on love and obedience I want to share with you. And the first one is this, love and obedience are inseparable. They're inseparable. You look in scripture, a lot of times where love is, obedience is close by. We look where obedience is, love is close by. Not either or. Some of us, I think, lean towards one or the other. And the reality is, what the Bible's teaching us is that it's both and. And this is not just John. This is Jesus. Jesus in the final days in the Gospel of John, which John, the disciple, wrote, who wrote First John. That's confusing. What he wrote in this final discourse of John 14 to 16, he kind of had this last few moments with his disciples before he went to the cross. It was like his final deposit of information of like, before I hand it over to you people, here's what you need to know to carry out the kingdom and to accomplish the mission. So lean in. Look what he says in John 14. Tell me if you see a pattern. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is one who loves me. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And anyone who does not love me, guess what? Will not obey my teaching. You're like, I get it, man. Look, it's not me, it's Jesus. I'm sorry, all right? He just really wants this to get through to our heads that it's both and. Whether you put it first or after each other, we need both. I'll demonstrate this. Through my marriage, which is always a great thing to use as an example. So my wife, I already told you, she's a foodie. God bless it. She also is someone who has a love language. Everyone know what the love languages are in here? Yeah. Yeah, okay, you know what we're talking about. So her love language, her love language is acts of service, which means that the best way I can say to my wife, I love you, is not with words, but with a sponge and some soap doing the dishes or vacuuming or picking up the living room, or taking out the trash, or feeding the children, changing diapers, whatever. Acts of service is how I tell her I love her. Specifically when I do it without her telling me, because she doesn't want me to actually have to be told. She wants me to read her mind and know, like, you should do it. But, but it's, it's not a big deal. It's just, it's just kind of how it is. Any, any other wives, acts of service in there, that you'd be like, that's me. Oh, God bless it. There's more in this service than last service. Listen, men, we're going to start a support group, all right? called more than a pair of helping hands, all right? We are more. Here's the deal. Let's say I knew about Hannah, and so I just decided my goal in life was to do every single thing I could under the sun to serve her, provide for her, take care of her. And I was just a machine, just awesome at it. And let's say people knew that, and they're like, man, Christian's amazing. He's always just like doing stuff for Hannah. She never has to lift a finger. It's like amazing, right? All the other husbands hate me. What if they come up to me and they say, Christian, where do you get it from, man? Like, what's the motivation? What's the, where do you draw this from? And if I was like, uh, it's just kind of my job. That's what I have to do. Anyone in the room just like, that's what I want my marriage to be about. Uh, this, this guy who's a robot, who's just basically a glorified butler. Some of you may actually like that, but you deserve more in marriage, okay? We don't just want a butler. We want a husband who loves us. What if I just did that and I had no love, but I just saw this as my job to do stuff that flowed not from a heart of love, but from a heart of duty. No one would be like, yeah, I'll take that. On the flip side, let's say I sang her praises 
And I'm just constantly talking about how amazing she is. I'm telling her, I love you. You're beautiful. You're so talented at singing. It's incredible. Like I'm just always saying nice things about her. But I'm a deadbeat at home. I don't lift a finger. I don't do anything. Vacuum, no. Dishes, not my job. But I love you. Like she would, she might go to prison. Like she would not, she would not be okay with that, right? And no one would feel like that's a loving thing to do, to just say things but never back it up with actions. When it's in the context of a relationship, we kind of see what John's getting at here, right? It's both and, not either or. Here's why this is really important. Let's go back to what John said about the world in 1 John 2, 15. What did he say? Do not what? Love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. See, at the end of the day, what this battle is, is a battle of the heart. Because you will follow what you love. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to build your life around that. The thing that you love, you're going to give attention to. The thing that you love, you're going to sacrifice for. The thing that you love, you're going to invest in. Whatever you love is going to dictate your course of life. And John, understanding that, is saying, we got to have this in order. Because if we don't, it's going to be bad. We won't have spiritual victory. We're going to follow the world, and it's going to lead to spiritual defeat. Here's the point for you today. Our love for God expressed through obedience. You can even say our obedience produced by love overcomes the temptations of the world. Our love for God expressed through obedience overcomes the temptations of the world. You say, that's fantastic, Christian. Can you back that up with scripture? You bet I can. Galatians 5, look what Paul says. He says, I say, walk by the spirit. What's going to happen? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's mind says this, if you're walking in step with the Spirit, a.k.a. walking with Jesus, obeying him, loving him, in a relationship with him, if you are keeping in step with him in that way, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh, the temptations you're battling. What the world throws at you, you're going to be like, no, I'm good. I'm following Jesus. If you stay in step with the Spirit, you'll overcome the temptations of the world. And when you don't, guess what you're going to do? Probably going to drift away from Jesus probably going to fall, find yourself in the pattern of this world, not walking by the spirit, but walking by the flesh. But to defeat that, we have to walk by the spirit. We've got to walk in obedience. Love and obedience inseparable. Second thing, obeying God is for our good. Obeying God is for our good. It says this in verse three, that his commands are not burdensome. I'll just say it. I feel like we beg to differ. Right? I'm not the one, don't get me spiritual. I know we look at these commands and we don't always think that this book feels freeing. We often feel like it's restrictive. We don't always have this joy or heart or a heart that wants to do everything God calls us to do, especially when it rubs up against something that we want to do and it says, don't do that. And then we're like, well, okay, how can I sidestep this, right? It feels burdensome sometimes. It's okay to be honest. I'll say it. I've felt that way before. But what I found is that when that happens, if you think that today, I think what it's really pointing to is a misunderstanding of God's heart for you and his heart for his commands and why he wants you to follow them. Again, going back to Jesus and that kind of final discourse with his disciples, John 15, look what he says. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love. There it is again, right? Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Look what he says. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is trying to tell us, the reason I want you to stay in my love and to follow my commands is not just so I could say, look at all my slaves I have, but because it's how his joy, Jesus's perfect joy gets into his people and our joy is complete. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be joyful than burdened. 
And Jesus says the way that we get that joy is not by doing whatever we want, but by following him. I'll illustrate it this way with a kite. Any of you guys fly kites in here? Anyone? Huh? Huh? There's a couple. There's a couple. Don't be ashamed. It's okay. I don't do it, but it's fine. <laughs> kites are cool. Kites are really cool. If you live in a windy city, it's really fun. So a kite, we know how a kite works. Let's imagine a kite came to life. And what he would experience his first time going into the sky, right? Probably this rush of adrenaline of like, wow, look, I'm flying. This is incredible. Look how I'm climbing to the sky. It's beautiful. It's blue. It's windy. Feeling the wind in its sails. It's just, it's just having the time of its life, right? But almost immediately, that kite would feel something. It would feel something annoying, kind of a tug. And no longer would that kite continue to climb into the sky, but it would stop. And it would be hindered from doing whatever it wants. And it would be something dictating how high it could go. And it would be this string. That at once it was having the time of its life. But now there's something pulling it back. And the kite probably thinks, man, if I could just cut this string loose, I could do whatever I want. I could fly wherever I want. I can go as high as I want. I can get away from this string that is binding me right now. But what the kite knows, or doesn't know, is what we know, is that if you cut that string, that kite may dabble in the air for a moment or two, but soon that kite's coming crashing down into a pile of sticks and fabric. Because the irony is, the string that it feels binded by is the thing that actually enables it to fly. It's actually the thing that's enabling it to do what it's designed to do. And a lot of times, I think, we look at our string... And we think, not freedom, not joy, but burden. We feel constrained. We think for some reason that following these commands is not for our good, but it's actually God trying to, to like steal away the joy of sin in our life or something. But in reality, he's trying to tell us, I know how I made you. I know how life is supposed to be lived. Follow my ways because it's for your good, for your joy. Not burdensome, not restrictive. It's actually how you're meant to live. But when we cut this out of our life, it may feel fun for a second, but a lot of times it might end in a shipwreck. We have to understand we have to believe it's for our good. What this verse tells me is that there's going to be a lot of times that we think or feel that his commands are burdensome, which means that when there's something that is in our life that we know we need to do, but we don't really want to do it, we're going to start avoiding some stuff. We're not going to be probably around the same people We may not be going to church as often. We may plug our ears when we hear a tough sermon. So I just felt like this is a good question that I ask myself. I want to ask you, what step of obedience have you been avoiding? That you just struggle with, that you may know that you need to do, but you are just like, no, I I don't want to, no. That's too difficult. That's too much. It could be something simple. You may be someone that just needs to get in a small group. You've never been in a spiritual community. You know you should be. Maybe serving, using your, your talents for the body in some capacity. Or maybe you're like me. An area like this, for me, was years ago with baptism. I got saved, started following Jesus in the spring of 2013. I didn't get baptized until the following year, in the spring of 2014. Actually, a little bit longer than that. I wanted to follow Jesus. I loved him, but like the whole baptism thing was really intimidating to me. I didn't like being in front of people. I don't like being in front of people. And I didn't even have to write a testimony. I just had to sit in a tub and get dunked. And I was like, no thanks. I don't want to do that. And ironically, God brought me to 1 John in a season of my life when I just didn't know. I want to know, am I actually saved? 
I was just wrestling with some stuff. And so I'm reading this book. I get to John 5, 1 John 5, and I read about this love and commands. And I'm like, God, I just want to know if I'm saved or not. And it's, it's like, he was like, okay, well, go do what I told you to do right after you got saved. Your first step of obedience was baptism. And you've got to do that. And I was like, that's a good point. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know yet. And so finally my mentor found out. And he said, bro, next time you do baptisms, you're getting dunked. I was like, awesome, that's great. And what I felt in that moment was burden. I felt dread. I know I needed to, but I just couldn't bring myself. Just a, a rant, just a silly fear was keeping me from doing it. And so I actually avoided him for a time. I didn't actually do it the next time they did baptisms. But eventually he caught me, cornered me. And March 18th of 2014, I got baptized. And it was the best day of my life. It was my favorite memories of people being there supporting me and my opportunity to, to identify myself with Jesus and death and life and the gospel and to proclaim it to my friends and family with me. It was a beautiful moment. Maybe for you, you're someone like me. We've actually, as a church, we've seen some amazing things happen this year. Make, people making spiritual decisions, starting to follow Jesus, recommitting their life to Jesus, but never taking that step of baptism. So we're in meetings talking about this of how do we help people do what we're supposed to do, which is disciple them and take their spiritual next steps. And we can't kind of close the gap here. What's going on? And I was like, guys, this is me. I was this guy. I was the guy that had a silly fear keep me back from obedience for over a year. We just got to pray that God gets them there. But maybe today you're someone like me and you know you need to be baptized. You haven't. Maybe you're a Christian for years and you're a little ashamed of it. You don't need to be ashamed. Maybe you got saved this year and you have not yet done it. I just want you to know, take it from a guy like me. Don't wait. No need to wait. We had a guy during services actually come up after Mike told me, Pastor Mike, and he said, some dude came up and he said, it's time for me to get baptized. And I was like, yeah, like that's my guy. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. December 18th is the next time we're doing baptisms. Guess what? 18 is a really cool number. March 18th is when I got baptized. We could talk about it. We could be best friends, <laughs> all right? I'm just saying, maybe that's you. Maybe that's your step of obedience. I don't know what it is. But what is it that you've been avoiding that you've just felt like is a burden? That's a dread. In reality, people who overcome, we love through obedience. We know. We know it's for our good. It gives us joy. The second mark of an overcomer is those who have victory through faith. An overcomer has victory through faith. John says in verses 4 through 5, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So notice something a little bit different. Verse 1, it was that Jesus was the Christ. Now we're talking about him being the Son of God. We go back to week 2, talking about authentic faith, the testimony of authentic faith. And we learned about Jesus from these verses about how he was the Son of God. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. Here it is. God has given us eternal life. I lost my place. I apologize. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever, doesn't have, whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So notice what it said, that it's in his son that eternal life is, and we have that in him. So the next few verses, like I said, is supporting and unpacking this idea. So before, faith sandwich, remember? We look back on the cross, power to overcome right now. And now John, I think, is fixing our eyes to look forward to what he has given us in the future. Here's the point. We overcome the world by putting our faith in the Son of God and, we, and what he has promised us. I'll give you that point. Let me unpack it for you. We overcome the world by putting our faith in the Son of God and what he has promised us. 
bundled up in the Son of God, this idea of eternal life, it's eternity. Now, let's be honest again. Like being honest today. Life can get difficult. Having this kind of faith can be hard. Looking towards eternity can sometimes not really feel like it used to. It can kind of feel like, is it really there? Is it not? It doesn't really help us in this time. Especially when what we see does not line up with our faith. When push comes to shove, a lot of times it's kind of discouraging for us. And there's a man in the Bible that had this very experience named Asaph. Asaph was a great man. He was someone who was a worship leader for the people of God, essentially. A lot of people equate him to having talents and gifts on par with close to King David, who was very musically talented. This guy, if there was any guy to be like spiritual, like that Jesus guy that you avoid and don't want to hear when you're in a bad mood, Asaph was this guy, all right? He was the guy that was going to always be ready to lead the people in God, of God in worship. And Psalm 73 is one of the most relatable psalms, passages in the Bible that I think we have. It's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Look what he writes in Psalm 73. He starts off good. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God's good to his people. He starts off there, but look what happened. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was doing good, but all of a sudden, something didn't line up with his faith. Looking out in the world, looking at people who don't know God, and he started to have these issues, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He's looking at them. He's looking at himself and he's thinking, this is not lining up here. Look what he says. Look how he describes these people who don't know God. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. How about for him? What does he think about his situation? Surely in vain. I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. I don't know about you, but I've been there. You're looking around in the world. You're looking at people who don't know God, don't care about God, but their life looks a whole lot better than your life. And you have this moment of thinking, what am I doing? This faith thing isn't actually lining up with what my eyes are seeing. I'm not really sure what the point is anymore. They're never sick. They have no issues. They're getting rich. They look good. I'm over here wasting my time trying to follow God. This is in the Bible. How encouraging, right? Look what he says. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And it should. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, a.k.a. Asaph went to church. Then I understood their final destiny. What did Asaph do? Asaph took his situation, his circumstance... And he put it into an eternal perspective of understanding that his faith would be worth whatever he's going through right now. What he didn't have, what he would experience, it's like it's not going to matter because I'm looking towards the end. A really great pair, a, a, a common verse to use that kind of matches this passage of 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says this, for our light and momentary, these light and momentary troubles, aka the life we're living, these 80 years that we have on earth, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. See, what is seen is temporary, it's fading fast, but what is unseen is eternal. I find it interesting that he says that because in 1 John 2, 17, look what he says about the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
See, that's the point today. That's what it means to have this eternal perspective. That's what it means to not put our faith in our situations or our possessions or our feelings and desires or in people. We put our faith in one person, that's Jesus. And what he embodies is this promise of eternity with him. And we sang it in this, that third song, how we long to breathe the air of heaven. When the pain and suffering is gone and mercy is filling the streets, when we get to walk with him into all eternity, that's what we're aiming at. And that's exactly what Asaph does here as he closes out the psalm. Psalm 73, 23 says, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand, relationship. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, after this life, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and heart may fail, and they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We look back on the cross, and we, we know we have power to overcome. Helps us right now to obey and to love and to grow a relationship with Jesus. And we continue that by looking forward ahead at what the Son of God has achieved for us in the future. We live in a faith sandwich. Looking back and looking ahead. Fixing our eyes on the things that we can see, but the things that are unseen. And no matter what this life and world can offer us, whether it be pain or pleasure, we can say it will be worth it. It'll be worth it as we walk with him into all eternity. What has God spoken to you today and how do you need to respond? We're gonna transition to a time now of reflection. I love what we've been doing lately as a church, just giving a time to, in a, in a mode of worship, we're gonna have a time of prayer. We're gonna have some prompts on the screen, about three different questions where you're just gonna read them silently. And what we want you to do is respond in prayer to these prompts. Whatever God puts in your heart, whatever he says to you, we just want you to be honest. Out of what this sermon has said and the content of it, just sitting there with the Holy Spirit of God, just talking. Allowing these questions kind of dictate that time and to lead you into your next steps. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have some prompts on the screen behind me. Then I'll come back up and close this. God, I pray right now that you would help us to be honest and courageous. To be honest about the things that are not right in our life and to be courageous about taking the steps that you're leading us to take, Lord, believing that it's for our good, for our joy. So be with us in this time. Speak clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name.